Hello. Financial wrongdoing and rule-stretching seems to be constantly in the headlines right now. Whether it's the challenge of seizing the hidden assets from Russian oligarchs, the tax-avoidance methods of the Chancellor's wife, or the shamed Tory MP who received an undeclared loan from one of those oligarchs, we all find ourselves trying to get our heads around the various ways rich and powerful people maximise their wealth and influence by minimising their tax liabilities and transparency. But while these issues are in the headlines now, there have been some determined campaigners and journalists who've been trying for years to get us to understand this murky world and its consequences. In this edition of Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to someone who's been at the forefront of that work and who wants us to understand just how deeply our own country is implicated. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Oliver Bullo, the journalist and author. He's written books on the former Soviet Union and his financial expose, Moneyland, was an international bestseller. His new book is Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals. Oliver, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Now, let's start with the kind of title concept of the book, the idea of Britain as a butler. Tell me why you chose that metaphor. Well, I lived in Russia for many years. I still have a lot to do with Russia. And if you spend any time in Russia, you do end up writing about corruption. Corruption, it not just whacks you in the face because you keep having bribes extorted from you by police officers, but also because it is you know, a major limit, a restricting factor on the development of the country. It stops it from developing in all sorts of directions. And so you know, living in Russia, working in Russia as a journalist, I ended up writing about corruption a lot. But it became particularly sort of vexing in a way to hear Russia being lectured about corruption from Western politicians and Western public figures, considering all of the money that got stolen, or certainly a significant proportion of it, seemed to end up in the West, and particularly in London. I would, when I was working in Moscow, I'd quite honestly be often called up by editors who would say, some guy's just bought a mansion, or some guy's just bought a football club, or whatever. Who is this guy? You know, where did his money come from? You know, somehow the money somewhere in the ether between Moscow and London would be transformed from being looted wealth into foreign direct investment and would all be just fine. So we set up these things. When I say we, it's some friends and I set up some things we called the London kleptocracy tours when we would put people in a bus, drive them around, mainly West and North London, and point out properties belonging to oligarchs in order to try and expose the extent to which London is not just a financial centre for legitimate wealth, but also a a financial centre for illegitimate wealth. And as a result of this sort of role I had in the kleptocracy tours, when people, you know, coming from the US or Germany or wherever, who were writing about kleptocracy, grand corruption, foreign wealth, used to come to the UK, they would quite often get in touch with me and and ask me out for a coffee, partly because, you know, I'll pretend they wanted to hear my opinion, but mainly, I think, because they wanted to raid my contact book and find out who they could talk to in politics and administration and law enforcement, who could, you know, give them the inside scoop on what was going on. And there was one particular occasion when a US academic called Andrew had asked me out for a coffee and we were talking about kleptocracy and grand corruption. And basically what he wanted was 
to have names of other people to talk to. And he kept asking me for the equivalent of various US institutions, you know. What's the British equivalent of the prosecutors in the Southern District in New York? Who's bringing the cases here? Or what's the British equivalent of homeland security investigations? Who's investigating, you know, immigration crimes? And eventually, you know, I became more and more depressed. And and eventually I had to say, to stop him and say, look, I'm going to have to stop you because all of these people you're asking for, they don't exist, right? We don't do any of those things here. You're America, you're the policeman to the world, right? You investigate these crimes, you prosecute these people, you try and confiscate oligarchs' money. We don't do any of that. And then I wanted an equivalent. You know, I love a snappy metaphor. I wanted an equivalent. If America is the policeman of the world, you know, what's Britain? And it's a little bit like our roles, a little bit like a conciliary in a mafia film. You know, the guy who's next to them, the godfather who, who tells him, you know, how to run his business and so on. But obviously that's not a British stereotype. And I wanted a British stereotype. And it suddenly came to me, well, you know, what's the British equivalent of a conciliary? It's a butler. You're impeccably dressed, you're polite, you're well-mannered, you've got the right accent, you can quote classical literature, but essentially you're amoral and just will do whatever you like for a fee. I was called, in a book review recently, it was called the Dark Jeeves concept. But actually Jeeves is pretty dark. Yeah, no, you've ruined it for me, Oliver. You've ruined it for me. I mean, look, the book was a fantastic book, but there's one downside about this book. I will never be able to read Jeeves again because it's suddenly become bleak. <laughs> yeah, th- this is it. I've, I've actually, there's a, there's a friend of mine who keeps trying to get me to retract my my, uh, <laughs> my analysis of Jeeves for precisely that reason, because Jeeves is a, is a profoundly amoral human being. He He's incredibly clever, right? He's unbelievably well-educated. He could do anything he likes. And instead, he devotes his considerable brain, which as we know is very large because he eats a large amount of fish, he devotes his considerable brain to helping rich halfwits get out of, you know, scrapes of their own making. And he's prepared to go the extra mile to achieve it. He knocks a policeman unconscious, he bribes a policeman, he uses secret inside information to terrify a fascist into silence, he sets up an, an illegal bookmaking ring. All of these things are, you know, all in a day's work for Jeeves if there's money in it for him. And that's basically what Britain is. You know, we are We've got the classical illusions in our ruling class with lovely tailoring, lovely accent, all the right schools and so on. But essentially, if there's money in it, we'll do absolutely anything. And that's what I mean by butler to the world. It's a very powerful concept. Now, I want to explore some of the key themes of the book. And the first is the importance of certain kind of moments. There are certain moments when this role of as butler becomes kind of accelerated and embedded. So there's the emergence of euro dollars or the discovery of Scottish limited partnerships as vehicles for hiding money and ownership. And one of the really fascinating things, Oliver, about the book is the way you search out, speak to, research the people who were there when these schemes first started. And often they didn't really understand the kind of monster they were creating, did they? No, I mean, it's really important to understand that this is an accidental process. I used to, back in 2014 in Ukraine, just after they'd had a revolution, I used to have quite long, jolly, drunken evenings with Ukrainian journalists talking about whatever particular documents exposing corruption we'd found that day, you know, because it was so it was so amazing. There was all these documents just lying around that we could pick up. And we used to have these long discussions about whether, you know, a particular phenomenon was better explained by corruption or incompetence. You know, were the Ukrainian police awful because they were corrupt or they were incompetent? Well, normally, obviously, it was both. But there was also a sort of a third explanation, which was that it was something that no one had designed, right? Think about corrupt is as a sort of evil controlling genius behind it. And it's it's an accident, but it's a kind of profitable accident. So it's not really incompetence either. It's a sort of 
oh, look what we can do now and no one's noticed we're just going to keep doing kind of thing. And there isn't a word for whatever that is, but that's what Britain keeps doing sort of again and again. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, Scottish limited partnerships, an incredibly obscure item in British corporate law, largely used throughout the 19th century just for regulating Scottish agricultural tenancies, discovered in the 1990s by some criminal genius in Eastern Europe that they were the perfect vehicle for hiding the ownership of criminal wealth, you know, impenetrable. You know, the the British Virgin Islands, a place so obscure that I mean, if you look in Hansard for references to the British Virgin Islands before the 1970s, you will discover that there is only one reference. Admittedly, it's done again and again. It's a particularly, it's a sort of rather bad taste joke when someone mentions the British Virgin Islands and someone else says, where are they? And then the first person will say, I don't know, but they must be far from the Isle of Man. That was the sole reference to the British Virgin Islands, a British colony, which never gets any kind of attention at all, and yet repurposed as an amazing hub for money laundering. And then, you know, the Ur example, the euro dollar market, is when the city of London is repurposed. It went from being the engine of the British Empire to being the engine of global corruption. And essentially, it was the same pipes, the same financial plumbing that moved pounds around the world. When the British Empire went bust, no one really wanted pounds anymore. It was just repurposed. And instead of moving pounds, they moved dollars. And in doing so, they discovered this amazing ability to evade anyone's laws at all. They created this legal concept they called offshore, which previously had just been a maritime concept, the clues in the name. But they discovered that if you apply it to financial instruments, then you end up essentially with this sort of legal lawless space. So this has been you know, what's been happening again and again and again in Britain, and not just the United Kingdom, but also our remaining colonies, that we discover these profitable loopholes, which you know, essentially because they're profitable, it's in no one's interest to close. And they just persist. And therefore, we become, you know, more and more skilled as a butler and able to offer more and more butlery services. Yeah. So the focus on particular circumstances and events and things which are done for kind of particular reasons, and then become institutionalized as means for people to hide their wealth or ownership or evade accountability. That might suggest that all of this is kind of contingent and accidental. But another theme of the book, of course, is how the British elite has actually been on the lookout for these opportunities, or perhaps even more, simply complicit in their continuation and growth. Yeah. So I think the the really interesting point is the way that there is this sort of constant tension between accidental discoveries of loopholes and the maintenance of the loophole after it's been revealed of the harm that it does. So, you know, the idea offshore, the original idea, this sort of legal concept that something was both was and wasn't in Britain, and therefore there were profits to be made from doing that, it doesn't make any sense, right? I don't think anyone would have designed it because I think anyone with a tidy lawyer's mind would have just looked at it and said, well, this is absurd. How can something both be and not be in Britain simultaneously? That doesn't work. But as soon as it existed, it's a very profitable thing. And you don't want to shut it down because you know there's so much money to be made. You mentioned the Scottish Limited Partnerships. The Scottish Limited Partnerships were used and still are used, though to a slightly lesser extent because of the fact the way they've been exposed, but were used to launder incredible amounts of money out of the former Soviet Union. You know, certainly hundreds of billions of dollars, possibly a trillion dollars, you know, hidden behind these obscure corporate structures, you know, which were used to own bank accounts in the Baltic states and and elsewhere. 
But they weren't only used by money launderers. They were also used by private equity funds in the city of London. So when it was exposed, mainly thanks to some you know, tireless work by Scottish politicians and some Scottish journalists working for the Herald in Glasgow, when it was exposed that these obscure legal structures were not being used just for agricultural tenancies, but were instead being used for industrial scale money laundering, you know, there was a concerted effort by Scottish politicians to close the loophole because they were worried that because they're Scottish limited partnerships, that Scotland would get a bad name. But actually, because private equity was also using them, was making use of the same loopholes that the money launderers enjoyed, the Treasury insisted on maintaining them. So yeah, they are, as a rule, accidental discoveries. These things are not designed as a rule. But having been discovered, then you get this, this real lobby fighting to retain the loopholes that exist because they're just so profitable for the class of people who move money through them. You know, the lawyers and the accountants, the company formation agents and so on, can make a really good living, essentially, by being butlers to the wealthy, whoever those wealthy people are. Yeah, and that then takes me to another another theme, Oliver, which is the imbalance, in a sense, in terms of what we might try to do about these kinds of activities and loopholes and problems. So on the one hand, you have highly paid, highly skilled middlemen, whether they're accountants or lawyers or whatever, who earn a great deal of money by providing these services. On the other hand, you have not only often an, a kind of governing elite that's that's complicit, but also you've got the weaknesses of our institutions, the fragmentation of institutions that might actually be able to do something about this. This is a very depressing theme of the book, is this incredible imbalance between the people who are making money out of all this stuff and the poorly paid, fragmented, disregarded people who are trying to do something about it. Yeah, and it becomes a self-fulfilling problem, right? I mean, there are a lot of idealistic people in the country who work for you know, the civil service who are in politics, who work for the law enforcement and so on. But it becomes increasingly perverse to be idealistic in those circumstances, because as people who work, say, for the National Crime Agency, I think, realise, I know they realise because I've spoken to them, it rapidly becomes apparent that if they care, they're pretty much the only people who do care, right? There are very few politicians, certainly in leading positions in politics, who who care about this money. Very few people in leading positions in the civil service. And if you're going to keep banging your head against this particular wall, you're not going to get any backup, right? There's no political top cover. So eventually, you know, after four, five, six years of banging on about this, you just think, oh, well, I'll just go and work for you know, the compliance department in HSBC. I'll get paid twice as much for half the stress. And I'll just carry on doing that. So you end up with this self-fulfilling problem whereby the state architecture is incapable of tackling this money and the owners of this money because they're so well resourced. And one of the reasons for that is because it's incapable. And therefore, anyone who works for the state for any period of time who's got you know particular ideals to make things better eventually becomes disillusioned and goes off somewhere else. I've, I mean, I found myself in the extraordinary position when I started writing about you know, corrupt, particularly former Soviet money, because I'm a former Sovietist. But, you know, the, the principles are the same wherever the money comes from and how it comes to this country, how it gets hidden and moved and spent and so on, that quite quickly I was being asked to give briefings to really quite serious people. And it, I felt like a complete fraud because I don't, I mean, I'm a, you know, a history graduate uh, who just happened to be living in Russia for a long time and, and ended up stumbling upon corruption as an interesting subject and, and following my nose and writing articles about it. 
you know, and yet on you know as it were on the other side of the table you've got you know people who who are real experts in corruption the lawyers who've worked for for decades for big city law firms or so people who really know about how to move money but they're not talking about it right because they're obviously not got no interest in exposing you know how the money moves and how the money behaves when it's being moved so you end up with this incredible imbalance of arms which is that you've got someone like me on one side of the table and all the other people who who really know what's going on they're just earning you know huge fees you know moving money for the crooks and thieves i did this talk at a school about i don't know 4 or 5 years ago now and i find giving talks at schools absolutely terrifying it's far more scary than giving a talk to a room full of adults and i'd i'd done this sort of an hour or something and i thought i'd just about escaped with my life and and the teacher said has anyone got any other questions you know which is a sure invitation for everyone just to glare at you with their hands held down as far as they could go so they can escape a minute early from their class and eventually this kid at the back lifted his hand up really slowly and sort of glared at me he was a, you know he was a he was a big lad and he glared at me and he goes yeah if you know all this about money laundering why don't you just go and do it and <laughs> and it's such an amazing question and i've thought about it genuinely there there certainly hasn't been a week since that i haven't thought <laughs> about that question and i think about it most days about if i know all this about money laundering why don't i go and do it and obviously most people who really know about money laundering they do go and do it so they're not going to go and talk about it because they don't don't want to expose their tricks and everything so instead you end up with me wanging on about money laundering it reminds me oliver of a story my father was good friends with john mcvicker once the most wanted man in britain and he was invited to go to eton after he'd come out of prison i think he was seen to be an exemplar of somebody who'd reformed their lives and one of the yeah. children one of the pupils at eton put their hand up and said can you tell us what is it really like to be a criminal and he said well looking at you i think many of you should ask your parents <laughs> <laughs> so there's another school story to add to your collection well it's actually it's it's a really interesting point actually because I mean, there was this this joke that the Duke of Westminster, the father of the current Duke of Westminster, I think the current one is is elevated to the dukedom. I don't five six years ago, whatever. But his father, when asked to write in sort of Origin of Wealth in one of those questionnaires that you have to do when you open a bank account, he used to write pillage because <laughs> you know a, a thousand years ago when when his ancestors came over with William the Conqueror, that's what they did, right? They killed whoever owned stuff and then stole it, and then over a thousand years they became you know an aristocrat and. And that's essentially, in a way, an accelerated version of the process that all the Russian oligarchs want, right? They want to be able to go from pillage to being an aristocrat, but they don't want to have to wait a thousand years to do it. They want to be able to do it in in, in a decade or, or five years or whatever. So, you know, that's essentially what Britain does for people is it, you know, it transforms the parents who can send their children to Eton into, you know, good Etonians, right? I mean, that's the, that's the process. And I suppose in, in, in Britain, one of the things we've always been very good at is hiding some pretty shady behaviour behind an impeccable accent, and you know that's essentially what what we're teaching people to do with our with our butlering services. And how big an issue, Oliver, is sheer complexity in itself? I mean, on one level, it's a challenge in terms of how you engage people in understanding all of this, and you've done brilliant work in in popularising it. You know, your your wonderful film that was made by you know led by Donk has been watched by millions of people. Your kleptocracy tours. But in the end, and I found this in the book, I you know, I love the book, but there were certain moments where it didn't matter how often I read the same three or four paragraphs, I, I could recite them back to you, but that doesn't mean I actually knew what they meant. 
how big a challenge is complexity, both in terms of, of engaging the public and politicians in tackling this, but also in terms of the phenomenon itself? I mean, historically, we've tended to associate ideas like simplifying the tax code with with the right, with a kind of anti-tax perspective. But maybe your book made me think, well, actually, maybe simplifying tax should be a very much a progressive goal, because unless we massively simplify the system, it is always going to be open to exploitation by the accountants. Yeah, I mean, it, you're absolutely right. I, I think one of the really big problems that everyone writing about this issue has is how complicated it is. And that is deliberate, right? Every priestly caste, whether they are, you know, Middle Ages monks or accountants today, deliberately obfuscate what they're doing in order to make it harder to penetrate, right? That's part of the mysteries of any profession. Now, the way I conceive of it and the way I try to write it is that you have a three-stage process of sort of oligarchy. You've got the theft stage, your money is stolen, and then money is hidden, and then money is spent, right? Now, the interesting bits are the beginning bit and the end bit, how it's stolen and how it's spent. The stuff in the middle is just plumbing, right? That doesn't really matter. So an example of it, an indicative example is enough. That should be enough to carry a book. And you can just say, well, all the others are a little bit like that. You know, the more complicated the pipes in, in the plumbing become, it doesn't matter, right? It's still just plumbing. Often, us journalists, we spend so long trying to crack the plumbing in the middle of a money laundering scheme. We spend, you know, months that we assume everyone else is as interested by it as we are, but but they're not. It's accountancy. It's boring. It's supposed to be boring. So one of the things I try and do is replace a month-long investigation with a with a paragraph-long metaphor. That's what I try and do. It's like, it, you know, it just, just describe it as if it's an oil tanker and leave it at that. And if anyone's really, really interested in how it worked, they can email me and I'll tell them. So that's what I try and do. But occasionally, it becomes so complicated that you just have to admit this doesn't make sense, right? It's like quantum mechanics. It, it doesn't make sense. It, you can't conceive of it because it's desi- like the euro dollar market something that both was and wasn't a dollar at the same time. It it doesn't make sense because it's a legal absurdity, which is just a very profitable legal absurdity. But you you talk about the simplification of tax. I couldn't agree more. We have this incredibly complicated tax code. And I, I was talking to a lawyer about this last week, actually, and she had this wonderful point, which she said, if you, if you can't explain a law to an 11-year-old, then it's a bad law. And I think that's an issue with, for example, you know, why uh, is income from capital and labor taxed differently? Well, I mean, there are reasons, you know, but essentially it's just a bad law. You know, why is, you know, data protection rules, it's something I'm currently writing about, so it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine. Why are data protection rules not being used to protect ordinary people against big tech companies, but instead now being used to protect billionaires from scrutiny from journalists because it's a bad law and you know there's an awful lot of these laws that were passed for one thing and they've gradually gained sort of you know, offshoots and adjuncts and appendices over the years and they've just become so complicated that unless you have an army of accountants working for you you just can't understand them and actually that's actually only part of the problem because it isn't just that we have this incredibly complex legislation in this country but it butts up against incredibly complex legislation in every other European country and in the United States and all of the offshore centres of the former British Empire and so on. And they're all complicated in different ways. And so you don't just have loopholes within one country, but loopholes in the gaps between different countries. And basically, you end up with a system whereby 
if you're rich enough to navigate the system, or rather rich enough to afford people who are able to navigate the system on your behalf, then you can get away with almost anything. And if you're not, you're stuffed. And Britain, Britain's role as butler to the world is, is like chief navigator. You know, Jeeves the navigator. If you're if you want to find your way around the international financial system to hide your money, to get away without scrutiny, to get away without paying taxes, you know, we are the best when it comes to that. That's what we do. And there is a, you know, a substantial chunk of our professional classes who make a very good living out of doing that. And it's pretty dark, to be honest. Yeah. And I've seen a different side of this, Olive, in the work that I've done on work and the regulation of work and taxing of work, which is that sometimes people innocently end up being advised to use particular ways of being employing themselves, their, their, their status, and end up embroiled in terrible kind of conflicts of HMRC that go on for years and years and years when they didn't really intend to, but their accountants advised them to, and they weren't able to know whether or not this was a, a good or a bad thing to do. So, I mean, obviously, the biggest issue here is people who deliberately manipulate it and make money out of it. But this complexity can also hurt people who almost accidentally do the wrong thing. I think that's right. I mean, there is an enabler class that creates these schemes and makes money from selling them. You know, I mean, I think at its most egregious, you see it in these big defamation cases between oligarchs and newspapers, when the enabler class has not only, you know, brought this case and, and driven this case, but they're in the wonderful position of being paid whatever happens. Because you know someone's going to pay their costs, whatever happens. So you know it is a it, it is a, a pretty unconscionable situation that we've created. You're absolutely right. I want to turn in the, the last bit of our conversation, Oliver, to the kind of rationalisations that are offered for our role as the butler of the world. Now, the most commonly cited one, one that you cite a number of occasions in in the book, and you actually you know quote people using this rationalisation unapologetically, is well, if we don't do it, someone else will. I mean, that's clearly morally reprehensible but is it is it also true oliver it's a really interesting question and it absolutely gets to the core of the development of the butlering industry and the maintenance of the butlering industry which is this recognition that what we're doing is morally reprehensible but you know if it's going to happen anyway we may as well be the ones who make money out of it now it is intellectually true. It is logically true that if Britain didn't do this, someone else could, right? All countries are essentially equivalent in what they could do. But it isn't actually true because Britain is in a unique position, or not unique, the only other country that's in the same position as the United States when it comes to having this total full spectrum provision of services. There are other countries that do little bits of butlering, you know, Ireland's quite good for tech companies. Switzerland's quite good for hiding the wealth of rich people, you know, and so on. But in terms of being able to do everything from soup to nuts, Britain and America absolutely stand alone in terms of the services they can offer to rich people. And the one thing Britain has on top of that is utterly feeble law enforcement agencies, underfunded, demoralized, who aren't able to do anything about it. So if we weren't doing it, someone else theoretically could do it. But in reality, they couldn't because no one else has our skills. And the reason they don't have our skills is because the abilities that Britain has to move, hide, accept, invest money, and so on, were built up over hundreds of years of empire. These are the skills of the empire. Because what the oligarchs are doing now is what we used to do, right? What Putin's doing to Ukraine at the moment, you know, he objects to a country's foreign policy and trade policy, and therefore is trying to bomb it into submission. That's what we used to do. We famously did it to Zanzibar once in a war that lasted 45 minutes, but we did it to China too. We'd do it to anyone. And so 
not many people have those skills. And so I don't, you know, this argument, if we don't do it, somebody else will, you know, as the Dr. John song has it. I don't actually think that if we didn't do it, that there would be anyone else who could do it. Not immediately. It might, maybe in a hundred years, someone else could step up and learn the skills, but not just like that. And so we do have an opportunity that if we stop doing this, if we even just stop doing it a bit, we have the opportunity to make the world a much better place to, to empower Democrats and to disempower kleptocrats, disempower oligarchs. And that's a, actually quite an exciting thought. And do we, Oliver, also need to change the balance of power? I mean, because of the issues that many poorer people face in relation to criminal justice, people on the left generally, their their view is, well, we want to defend the rights of those who are accused of things, not always, but 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 that's kind of broadly one's instinct if one's a progressive. But reading your book, I, I, I felt on a number of occasions, I just wish the forces, the regulatory and criminal enforcement forces had more power and that actually people were not able to use so many tricks to defend themselves. So do we need to address that balance? We have pretty good laws, right? Our laws aren't perfect. We need to sort out the shell company problem, for example. There are issues that need resolving. But in general, our laws are pretty good. It's just they're not enforced. I think one of the most shocking lines in the book is a quote from the director of the National Crime Agency in evidence that she gave to the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament in a report published in 2020. When asked why her officers didn't go after the oligarchs. She replied, we have to bluntly be concerned about the impact on our budget. Now, if you're concerned about the impact of your budget when you're up against an oligarch, you're going to lose. That's just just a fact. They, if they care more about protecting their wealth than you do again about investigating it, you're going to lose. So, you know, we have apparently enough law enforcement resources when it comes to investigating benefit fraud and investigating you know the misdeeds of ordinary people but somehow when it comes to investigating tax frauds of oligarchs or the or the theft of oligarchs those resources aren't available and this is incredibly frustrating because experience in other countries shows that if you investigate top end tax dodging and top end fraud and kleptocracy you know, after the initial investment, it pays for itself because these, you know, these are very wealthy people. These are very successful criminals. If you take the money away, then it will fund the investigations itself. And that's why this is incredibly frustrating because it's very sort of, you know, penny wise and pound foolish to say that we can't afford to fund the National Crime Agency properly or the Serious Fraud Office properly because the money's there. You just need to investigate it and then you can take it and fund yourself from that cash. And you would end up with a society when everyone was actually treated equally before the law. Because as it is, essentially, it feels like law enforcement agencies you know, have got the resources they need to, as you say, to tackle people who have been brought into a, you know, a, a tax scheme they didn't really understand as part of a kind of retail business or have you know, engaged in some minor benefit fraud. They're targeted. But not people who've stolen, you know, tens of millions, you know, or those kind of people. They, you know, they're they're not targeted at all. Instead, they've sold elaborate and delightful properties in West London. We saw this, you know, highlighted unbelievably clearly when those four slightly daft anarchists went and dangled their heels off the balcony in Eliag Derapaska's mansion in Belgrave Square. Actually, I don't think it was his mansion. I think it belonged to a family member. They went and sat there and, and sort of waved at their friends from the balcony. 
And there must have been, what, 25 police officers around them. There was a specialist unit with a cherry picker and helmets and harnesses to try and get them off the balcony. You know, there were cordons set up. It was extraordinary, the sheer presence of people. And I would say that's 25 more police officers than ever spent any time wondering about the provenance of the money that bought that house in the first place. You know, this is a Russian oligarch who got very, very wealthy in the 1990s, a time when everyone knows Russia was, let's face it, not exactly Denmark. And yet, no one really cared when he brought money here and bought a house with it. They only cared when some anarchists went and sat on the balcony and dangled their feet and, and waved at their supporters. You know, and that was just London in a nutshell. That's Butler Britain in a nutshell. You know, when there's a threat to the property, we'll protect it. But when it comes to the origin of the money, now we don't have time and money to look into that. So finally, Oliver, looking forward, I mean, there are signs of change. There's the greater awareness of this murky world highlighted by things like the exposure of the Panama Papers. There are signs of international action, for example, on corporate tax rates. And now, of course, we have a stark reminder that some of the people we've helped to the beneficiaries and loyal supporters of the regime that's brought war to Europe. Do you think that we may have reached a turning point? And, and what would what would have to happen for you to feel that Britain and indeed the rest of the world was finally going to get out of the business of assisting tax dodgers, criminals and kleptocrats? I'm going to dodge that question a bit because I worry that if we find ourselves hoping that Britain is going to stop being a butler, we'll just end up disappointed. And you know, like some of those people who I mentioned who work for the National Crime Agency, then after six years, they'll just give up and go and work for HSBC. My philosophy in this derives from my friend Daria Kalinyuk, who's one of the bravest people I know and who is an anti-corruption activist in Ukraine, though she's currently in Warsaw, uh, is running the office of the Anti-Corruption Action Centre there. And I once asked her how she doesn't get demoralised, you know, up against oligarchs all the time and, and you know, seeing endless reverses and difficulties in, in the work she does. She's achieved an incredible amount, but still, I mean, she's up against it every single day. And she said that she doesn't think about the situation like that at all. She doesn't think about defeating corruption 100%. She just thinks, well, currently we're at 4%. And my job is to get to five. And if we get to five, I'll look around and decide if I want to keep going. But if I decide we do, then my next job will be to get to six. So, you know, look, at the moment, we're talking a lot about Russian oligarchs, and we're talking about the need to, you know, get them out of London. And that's great. You know, that's that's getting us from four to 4.1%, really, because, you know, we're not butler to the Russians, we're butler to the world. We've got oligarchs from everywhere here, but it's still a start and it's still good. And I'll take it. You know, we're talking about international, a minimum international tax rate, which is good. And, you know, it's taking a while to be implemented. And it, by when it does, it'll have loopholes in, in it because that's how international tax law works, but it's still good. And that'll get us to 4.2 and so on. So, you know, I don't think that it helps to look at sort of a, you know, a, a broad sunlit upland and think that's where we need to be because, you know, the, the, the way there will be so tiring that we'll get dem demoralized and give up. Instead, we just need to take the wins when they come and keep, you know, strategizing about how we can make sure we get a few more of them. And, you know, if there is a, a positive side to the horror in Ukraine at the moment, and, and you know, it, it feels awful saying that, it is that at least we are now realising more clearly the role that our country has played in enabling the crimes of Putin's cronies. And if we can get out of that business of enabling their crimes, it'll be easier to get out of the business of enabling all financial crimes. You know, it, it's going to take a lot, of, a lot of effort. There's going to be a lot of people who aren't 
going to want this to happen because it's very profitable for them. But you know, we, we just need to take this one percentage point at a time. Well, that's a fitting end to our conversations, Oliver, because your book, Butler to the World, manages to be at the same time incredibly entertaining, incredibly depressing, but also rather inspiring. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. It's been really, real pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.